Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. This one, Spring Hill Jack, man, myth, or demon. Tell you what, he's not a demon, because demons aren't real. Unless you could say, like, people are demonic. Like, as in bad, but not like some, you know, pointy ears and shit. Not like a Vulcan, but like, you know, a devil or something like that. I've never heard... I've heard of Spring Hill Jack. I've no idea what it is. What he is, who he is, anything like that. I literally don't know anything else about this. Thank you, Kevin, for writing this script. The format here is I've never read this before. We're going to explore it together. Maybe do some decoding. Let's jump in. When I was in high school, my friends and I went to the theater to see what turned out to be one of the worst movies I've ever had the displeasure of watching. As we were waiting in line to get in, we saw the audience from the previous showing walk out in silence. There wasn't a single happy face among the hundreds of audience members. And one of my friends said to the rest of us, if I walk out of the theater looking that disappointed, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> Layers of disappointment. Tell you what, when I was uh, in secondary school, which is I think what we call high school in the UK, ages 11 to 18, me and my mates, we must have been like 13, and we went to see a movie called Kung Fu Hustle, which I later learned is quite a popular and apparently like influential movie or something in terms of like style or whatever. But 13-year-old Simon, sorry, I'm just opening a Coke. Simon, can you hear that? Simon and his mates were like, what did we just watch? That was the biggest load of garbage. And because we were 13, going to the cinema was a lot of money, you know? You'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's probably like four pounds or whatever it was back in the day because I'm old. And uh, we just left that and we're like, we just, you know, nowadays I just leave the cinema. I went to see one of those Fast and Furious movies. I hadn't seen, I, I'd seen like the first one and then my mate's obsessed with them. We went to see it and I was like, mate, I'm going to leave. This is really bad. And he was like, no, it's great. And I'm like, it isn't though. It wasn't like I just abandoned him. It was a group of like six of us and i just i just couldn't take it it was so silly <laughs> and i like cars it was just silly if the filming question was a horror movie a genre that generally is severely lowered expectations from film film girls making it almost impressive that it seemed no one enjoyed the show as we sat down and the movie began it seemed promising at first it did a good job of creating a suspenseful atmosphere but within minutes the first lazy jump scare occurred oh, jump scare it's like okay yeah it's like someone saying boo to you it's like yes it's alarming is it clever no <laughs> no psychological horrors like i i saw i haven't seen the ring as an adult but i must have been a teenager when i first saw the ring and it scared the shit out of me i still think it's one of the scariest films that i've ever seen no one's getting like brutally no i guess they are getting brutally murdered but it's all in that like psychology of it i didn't want to look at tvs for weeks <laughs> i was like no what i'd have my computer in my room like my laptop and i'd close the lid on it you know before going to bed being like no i don't want to see it 
<laughs> if you're not seeing the ring, the idea is you watch a videotape and a week later you die because you watched the videotape. Like some long-haired demon comes out of the TV. Scared the shit out of me. Jump scares are a tried and true method for bad horror writers to elicit a cheap reaction from the audience. Kind of like the soy face of YouTube thumbnails, like me going like, oh. <laughs> You know the one. And it's because people click on it. People are like, why does everyone do the soy face? Why is everyone like, ah, in the YouTube thumbnails? And it's because apparently people like some deep psychological thing makes people want to click on soy faces, which is bizarre. But okay. I've really been working on perfecting my soy face. This is very boring for anyone who's listening to this as a podcast, but you know, really popping the eyes, getting the mouth open, getting my shiny teeth. You're like, ah. Such a tactic relies on the element of surprise, but every single person sees it coming. After the movie's initial failed attempt at scaring the audience, a wave of realization came crashing down upon all of us. It had been obvious all along, so obvious that we should have known better than to waste our time and money on this film. The entire audience already knew everything that was going to happen in this movie before it happened, and we had known for years. But we had no one to blame but ourselves, because we had voluntarily paid money to see a movie called Urban Legend, a movie that unsurprisingly was nothing but a collection of well-known urban legends slapped together. Wait, so multiple st stories in one film? I saw a great, it was just, uh, again, well, I don't know what I was recalling all these memories of movies that I saw when I was a kid, but I remember just tuning in one night to like late sci-fi channel movies or whatever, and there was a movie called like Strange Frequency, and it was the first movie I'd ever seen where instead of being like one long plot, you know, with different acts and stuff, it was three or four separate stories. And they were really good. One of them was about... I might be getting this confused with like episodes of The Outer Limits, but I think one of them was about like it was sort of like The Outer Limits, but higher budget, if I remember correctly, which is weird to say about a movie that was on the Sci-Fi Channel late at night because it's not exactly the, uh, the the stomping grounds of high budget movies. But one of them was about a Jimi Hendrix guitar or something that murdered people, something like that, and another one was about a rock group who trashed a hotel room every night. And then the cleaning lady would come in and fix it and they just got challenged challenging more and more like knocking down walls and stuff and she'd come in and fix it and then her cleaning cart murders them it sounds terrible when i talk about it you noticed but i remember being very entertained by this and then not being able to find it for years because i didn't know what it was called google wasn't really around and it was just like late night on the sci-fi channel i spent ages trying to find this movie and i couldn't and then you know now it's the future so you can just be like oh <laughs> and it's on this streaming set boom <laughs> Maybe I'll watch it with lunch today. One of the main things that is supposed to make urban legends scary is that they're allegedly true and usually happen to someone that the storyteller was vaguely acquainted with. The other key aspect is that we usually hear these stories when we're like eight years old, when we're too gullible and stupid to know that it's all made up. In the case of most urban legends, there's probably nothing true about them at all. Things like poisoned Halloween candy or people summoning the ghost of Bloody Mary are obviously false, but sometimes these stories spring up from an element of truth, such as the case with one story out of jolly old London dating back to the 1800s. Interestingly, Kevin, we just covered uh, poisoned Halloween candy, or if we haven't covered it yet, we'll be covering it soon. These don't always go out in the order I record them. And it was based on like a little kernel of truth. It wasn't someone intentionally poisoning other kids' candy, but there was poisoning of candy. Don't worry about it. Your kids are going to be fine. But it was, it, you know, usually there's a kernel of truth. The Bloody Mary one was like, that's ghosts. Ghosts aren't real. Check your carbon monoxide detector. While the phrase urban legend didn't exist until 1931, such stories have almost certainly existed for thousands of years. But none of those older stories are from people who spoke English, which means that they simply are not important. Well said, Kevin. <laughs> that's today why we'll be looking at what is often considered the original urban legend, Spring Heel Jack. Okay, so this is out of London. I assume this was. A, I assume the reason I'd never heard of this was because it's American, but apparently I've just never heard of it because I'm dumb. 
The First Sightings in the early 1800s, ghosts and demons frequently stalked the streets of London. Not really, but there were lots of reports of such things. One of the most famous of these was the Hammersmith Ghost from 1803 to 1804. That tale ended with a man being murdered because someone thought he was a ghost, and it set a really important legal precedent. The pertinent thing is that these sorts of sightings were all too common and they tended to grab the attention of the public. Jack made his first appearance in October of 1837. A poor servant girl named Mary Stevens was just walking back to her place of work after having visited her parents. Suddenly, a strange creature leapt out of an alley and grabbed her. The monster began to kiss her face as its sharp metallic claws tore her clothes and caressed her skin. Ah, yes. Nothing like being caressed by a sharp metallic claw. All oh, the days. <laughs> Mary screamed in panic, which drew the attention of nearby residents and caused the attacker to flee. Those that had come to the help of the woman immediately searched for her assailants, but no trace of him could be found. The next day, another attack took place in the same section of London. This time, the attacker jumped in front of a carriage, spooking the horses and causing the driver to lose control and crash, injuring himself pretty severely. There were several witnesses to the event, and they claimed that the man escaped by effortlessly jumping over a nine-foot wall in a single bound, as if he had springs in his heels. This earned him the nickname Spring Heel Jack. Nine foot. What is that, like three meters? <laughs> That's really high. He's not jumping over all that high. Those Olympic guys who just jump over that big pole, which I remember having to do at school, um, they're not jumping three meters high. <laughs> not even close, right? If they are, that's incredible. Sometimes you see Olympic stuff and you're like, wow. People can actually do that. That's kind of amazing. When you see, when you actually like, that's the long jump. That's really, really far. <laughs> it's like, wow. But I don't think anyone's jumping three meters. Hey Siri, what's the world record for high jump? 8.0 feet, 2.45 meters. <laughs> it's not far off three meters. That's pretty insane. These attacks continued in the coming months, and the stories became more elaborate. The reports of his attire differed, with early reports claiming he took the form of a white bull, and then later a white bear before his more humanoid and devilish appearance. However, all the reports shared a few things in common. Jack prowled the streets at night and almost exclusively attacked unaccompanied women. He wore either a skull cap or a helmet, a cloak, and he tore at women's clothing with his metal claws. The more sensible eyewitnesses stated that he was wearing gloves with metal claws rather than the claws being a part of Jack's natural physical. Theology. <laughs> Wolverine mother Then, of course, there was his supernatural ability to jump to extreme heights. He also reeked of sulfur like a demon that had crawled up directly from the pits of hell. And oh yes, he could breathe fire, but specifically blue fire. <laughs> Too far. Blue fire breathing jumps three meters, demon. <laughs> Despite these encounters with Jack taking place for months, nothing happened. The press never reported on it, and it seemed that the police couldn't be bothered. Yeah, because he'd be like, okay, mate, okay, yeah, what, the blue fire-breathing demon who jumps three meters? Smoke less crack, okay? Or whatever the Victorian... Smoke less opium, all right? Less opium smoking, please. That, assuming that the police were even aware of the murderous attacks taking place, as crime often went underreported. You see, Victorian England had a very strict class system. Even though reported crime rates were extremely high, st crime was still underreported because the lower class didn't trust the police enough to report most crime. This lack of trust came from the fact that crimes against poor people weren't considered terribly important and were rarely properly investigated. I mean, great news! It's really good that we've entirely solved this problem and people aren't afraid to go to the police and the poor get equal representation and their crimes are taken just as seriously in uh, the 23 in 2023. It's great. It's really nice that we fixed that. <laughs> Sarcasm is <laughs> obvious. Some serving girl claiming to the police that she had been assaulted by a fire-breathing demon obviously wouldn't have been uh, seen as evidence of a crime. It would be evidence of female hysteria. Yeah, I mean 
just because she's like things we should ignore that she's poor that she's a woman things we should not ignore the fact that she said it was a blue fire breathing demon because that's silly the stories were circulated around town but it wasn't worth trying to file an official report with the police and being written off as hysterical unless the girl in question happened to have a crush on a really cute doctor the treatment for female hysteria was a physician induced orgasm oh i didn't know about that actually they had these machines that would do it for you some sort of like masturbation machine from like victorian england <laughs> weird because you like oh the victorians they were all prudy except for all their masturbation machines victorian doctors had access to electric vibrators to treat hysteria before most homes had electricity because scientists know their priorities the terror of london it wasn't until January the following year that the press finally took notice of the fear that Spring Hill Jack was instilling in its citizenry. At a public session held at the Mansion House, the official residence of the Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, Jack received his first official recognition. Cowan revealed that a few days before the meeting, he had received an anonymous letter from someone who signed it only as a resident of Peckham. Since we don't know who the letter was from, we don't know whether or not the author was privy to any inside information regarding the true nature of Jack, assuming it was not actually a demon which it wasn't because this is taking place in reality <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't me that was kevin and kevin and i are on the same page the most pertinent part of the letter read to quote it appears that some individuals of as the writer believes the highest ranks of life have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he does not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near london in three different disguises a ghost a bear and a devil the wager has however been accepted and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses two of whom are not likely to recover but become burdens to their families holy shit, they got so scared that they just never recovered i mean I guess it's pretty scary being attacked by a demon, but you've got to get on with your life, right? I'm not saying, like, not, not, you've got to be careful in, like, 2023 not to, like, you know, shit on the victims too much. But he, okay, so it's scary that, that you got assaulted by a demon who cut up your clothes a little bit, but this isn't some Jack the Ribber. He didn't take out your insides. The writer went on to state that, as this had been going on for months, the press was clearly aware of Jack's existence but was choosing not to report on it. They further implied that the papers were being pressed into silence since whoever was responsible for the attacks was a member of the upper class. Though Cowan was skeptical, the audience confirmed that these attacks had been taking place. It may have been common knowledge to the peasants, but the upper class had been spared the torments of Jack. This open session took place on January the 9th, and the story of the letter and Springhill Jack was already being reported by the time that night with other papers following suit the next day the reason he wasn't attacking the upper classes is because then the police would do something everyone knows if you want to do crime do it to poor people because the police are much less likely to do anything about it although rich people make better targets because they have more stuff to steal for example it's a it's a complicated situation this crime business on the following day, Lord Mayor Cowan attended another meeting in which he revealed a pile of letters from all across London. The letters all described what were referred to at the time as being similar wicked pranks, because apparently jumping out of the shadows with knives on your fingers and making women believe that they're about to be sexually assaulted or murdered is just a prank, bro. Hilarious, dude. People don't change. He was like pranks on YouTube, what, like 10 years ago? <laughs> Or five years ago whatever whenever pranks were were ridiculous and fake and stupid but we just don't change as people and i'm sure some of them were really horrible there's definitely pranks that i remember that were horrible and it's like what have you done <laughs> how did you think this is going to go down get on your apology tour go
Given the quantity of letters that had poured in and the attestations of those at the meetings, Cowan was torn. On the one hand, he felt that the stories were clearly being exaggerated because he knew it was impossible for a literal ghost or devil to be terrorizing London. On the other hand, there was definitely somebody out there scaring these people, possibly while wearing a bear's skin. He finally ordered the police to find the person responsible for these attacks, something they should have been doing for months already. It wasn't until after the police became involved that two of the most detailed reports about Jack came out. One took place on February the 19th, and the attack was notable for two main reasons. The first is that the victim, 18-year-old Jane Alsop, was a member of the upper class, which meant that suddenly the police had to actually care about what was happening. The other thing that made this attack so different is that Jane wasn't attacked while walking the street. She was in her home. At around 8.45 p.m., Jane went to answer the door as someone was fervently ringing the doorbell. When she opened the door, she saw a man she thought was dressed like a police officer. He yelled at her, For heaven's sake, bring me a light. We've caught Springhill Jack here in this lane. When Jane retrieved the candle for him, he snatched it from her and threw his cloak to the ground, revealing the monster it had been concealing. Jack spewed blue and white flames from his mouth before snatching at her with his metal claws, his eyes glowing red like fireballs. He sliced her gown almost clean off and tore chunks of her hair, and as she turned around to flee back towards the house, he caught up to her, the sharp metal on his fingers tearing at her neck and arms. Jane let out a scream, and her sister came to the door, causing Jack to flee. <laughs> at which point he asked, Bro, it's just a prank, bro! Finally, it was time for the police to take things seriously. When investigators came to question Jane, she gave a full description of what happened and Jack's appearance. In addition to his more supernatural characteristics, she also said he was wearing a helmet and a white oilskin coat, a type of waterproof coat especially worn by sailors. Jane's father also believed that there were multiple men involved as the attacker had not returned to retrieve his coat. Unless someone else grabbed the cloak in the middle of the attack, I don't really follow that logic. If he knew that Jack didn't return for his cloak, then either he should have seen who did return for it or it should have still been there since neither of those things were the case and no description was given of the person who did pick up the cloak then i'm not sure how he would know that jack hadn't retrieved it himself regardless the police came to a couple of conclusions they concluded that jane really had been attacked a pretty obvious deduction since she had multiple injuries a torn dress and was missing some of her hair well done police so have you been attacked you got any evidence of this and jane's like look at me dude <laughs> he's not seen my body my hair the state of my undress their other conclusion was that the shock of the situation caused her to misremember the details. He didn't breathe fire or have red eyes, and he wasn't wearing an oilskin coat or a helmet. They believed it was just a white shooting coat and a regular hat, and that Jane's assistant was not Springhill Jack, but instead was some rando having a drunken frolic. If you're wondering how they explained all the cuts on her body from Jack's bladed fingertips, well, so am I. I'm also wondering how or why some drunken idiot would cleverly lure a girl from her home the way he had and immediately attack her. Then again, the attacks have been referred to as pranks, so maybe this sort of happened all the time back then. Further investigations were conducted by Detective James Lee, who some accounts claim was the best detective in all of London at the time. Indeed, it wasn't long before he made an arrest and took a suspect to trial. The suspect was one Thomas Milbank, a local carpenter, who drunkenly boasted in a pub about being Springhill Jack. At trial, he denied having attacked Jane and having made those claims, but he also admitted that he was blackout drunk, so he might have and just didn't remember. That's fine. I don't think it's him. <laughs> They're really grasping at straws. He's like, 
like, oh no, did I say? I was really drunk. I was just trying to brag to my mates. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just had like seven beers. It's not my fault. However, Jane and her sister were hearing none of it. They insisted that the man who attacked Jane was not drunk, or at the very least, not as drunk as this guy had been. Jane was also adamant that her attacker had breathed fire, a talent that Thomas rather shockingly admitted that he wasn't able to perform. You know, it's just like, oh no, but I can breathe blue flames. Even if he could, he wouldn't admit it, and obviously he can't because that's not real. As Kevin already said, this episode takes place in reality. Because of his inability to spew flames, Thomas was found not guilty. <laughs> and also the complete lack of evidence, other than him drunkenly saying that he did it. The next major attack happened on February the 28th. It was nine days after the attack on Jane and day one of Milbank's trial. Though the papers didn't report Jane's attack or the trial until March the 2nd, there was a large crowd there, and it's possible that the real Jack was either in attendance or aware of the trial. He could have chosen that day for another attack as a means of taunting the police, although the increased police presence after the Lord Mayor ordered they investigate the crimes hadn't slowed Jack down anyway, so he could have just been an asshole. Lucy Scales was the 18-year-old daughter of a butcher. She and her sister had been at their brother's mother's house that evening and had just left to walk back home. As they cut through an alley, they saw a figure standing and holding a lantern. Lucy believed that the person was a woman because they appeared to be wearing a bonnet. She approached the cloaked figure, who spit fire in her face, knocking her to the ground and causing her to have a violent seizure that reportedly lasted for hours. Lucy's sister was blinded temporarily by the light from the flames, but she covered her eyes and ran to help her sister. By the time she reached her sister, the man had fled and they were close enough to their brother's house for him to have heard their scream and he rushed to the alleyway. Together, Lucy's siblings carried her back home. Unlike Jane, Lucy wasn't from an upper-class family, so the newspapers couldn't give two f**ks about what happened to her. But Detective James cared. At the very least, he cared enough about helping the rich girl to interview these two plebs about what they had witnessed. Man, class? I know I was making jokes about how it's all fixed today and how it's not really fixed, but holy shit, the past. <laughs> <laughs> At least we made a little bit of progress, maybe? Both girls had similar stories. They described the man as being tall, thin, and having a gentlemanly appearance. He was carrying a lantern similar to the type carried by police, and they were absolutely certain that he had spit blue flames at them. The authorities were determined to find out the truth about this fire-breathing demon, and one answer would come from a rather unlikely place. A media sensation. Though the papers did little to report on the attacks of Springhill Jack in the beginning, others were far more interested in publishing his excavates. In January of 1838, just months after the attacks had begun, three pamphlets were published that purported to be the true story of Jack. These stories are believed to actually have been a combination of fact and fiction we can't say for sure. The last known existing copies were being held at the British Library, but they were destroyed in German bombing during World War II as part of a global conspiracy to cover up the truth about Jack. Yeah, of course they were, rather than them just being destroyed in bombings during a war, which are uh, quite common during wartime. Or because Nazis were assholes that liked destroying books, either way. But these were only the first of many, many works that would be written about Jack. In 1840, while Jack was still active, a production of the play Spring-Heeled Jack, The Terror of London began running. This is pretty weird, if we're being honest. That would be like going to the movies in the mid-1970s to watch a film about the killer clown that had raped and murdered dozens of people and was still going. But I digress. Yeah, it's a bit... <laughs> The people there were like, too soon, too soon, he could be outside. <laughs> What's wrong with you? In addition to the play, Jack became a staple of the Penny Dreadful. For those of you who don't know Penny Dreadful, so named because they cost one penny per issue, were publications <clears throat> like the old pubs that were popular back through the 1950s. And since that's probably equally unhelpful because most of you listening are too young to know what pulps are, uh, it's basically creepypasta. Penny Dreadfuls were magazines full of creepypasta, except not nearly as sh 
It's because they weren't written by edgy 12-year-olds. We'll talk more about Penny Dreadfuls in a bit, but first we need to go back to the theater. Investigators interviewed the employees there, but it was the owner of the Pavilion Theater, Mr. Farrell, that gave them a big lead. He explained to the police that by dropping certain strong acids onto a sponge that had been soaked in spirits of wine, it could produce flames similar to those that had been described. Depending on the type of acid that was used, a different color flame would appear. Oh, and spirits of wine is the old-timey British way to say grain alcohol. What are you having with your dinner? Uh, some spirits of wine. <laughs> it sounds almost classy when what you're actually drinking is just raw grain alcohol. This was a pretty big deal, but it lacked a certain amount of practicality. Dropping acid onto a sponge is hardly the same as breathing fire, though it was a starting point. Detective James went to London Hospital, where he saw a similar but more practical experiment that could recreate the fire-breathing effect. By blowing into a tube containing three ingredients, the ingredients would ignite and create the exact effects that they were looking for. Once again, the first ingredient was spirits of wine. That's 95% pure ethanol, so this would be the accelerant. The second ingredient was simply recorded as another ingredient ingredients, possibly because the police didn't actually want to give people instructions on how to breathe fire at one another. The second ingredient would have had to be the starter, almost certainly some sort of acid. Finally, it was the ingredient that I first mentioned about 20 minutes ago. It was the scent of hellfire and brimstone that followed Jack around. The third ingredient was sulfur, a chemical that burns bright blue. Through the power of science, the police were finally able to prove that Jack really could be spitting blue flames at his victims without the need for any sort of supernatural abilities. If he was blowing these ingredients out through a tube, it would also explain why he always seems to be described as spitting fire rather than breathing fire. Yeah, this is one of those things. It's like, so at first I'm like, oh, she's just imagining it. It's just the blue flames. And then it's like, okay, well, let's try and think about it and explain it. It's not demons. It's not supernatural. Science is always the thing that is going to provide the answer. There was just one problem. This wasn't actually a lead. None of the ingredients were expensive or hard to come by. The discovery showed that the witnesses could be telling the truth without requiring Jack to be anything other than human, but that's about it. All they knew was that Jack was a human male rather than a ghost or a devil, which was the assumption that they'd been working on anyway. Things were only further clouded by the fact that there were innumerable copycats popping up. Some of the copycats were caught, but there was never any suspicion that they were the authentic spring-heeled Jack. A few arrests were made, like the one we mentioned earlier, but none of it amounted to anything. Nobody would ever be caught and identified as Jack, but there would be many theories. Now we'll get to the theories shortly, but first let's take a look at how the rest of this 100-year-long saga played out. And don't worry, Simon, the other 100 years is very abridged, but if you need to pause to get another coffee or Coke Zero, I'll understand. No, we're doing about it. we got about half of it left. We're all good. Jack's Legacy in the years that immediately followed the initial attacks, Jack's fame spread like wildfire across England. However, while incidents involving Springhill Jack became more widespread, extending well beyond the confines of London, they also became less numerous. By the end of the 1840s, the reports had largely died down, though they did not go away. The most notable of the later reports came in 1877 from soldiers in Aldershot Garrison, where Jack allegedly enjoyed taunting the soldiers. According to the official story, a soldier was on sentry duty one night where he saw a figure approaching the camp from the darkness. The soldier demanded that the intruder identify himself, but the man remained silent. He then walked right up to the soldier and slapped him across the face several times. Another soldier opened fire, but the bullets had no effect, as the man revealed himself to be spring Jack by vanishing to the darkness with astonishing bounds. It's completely possible that the bullets had no effect because they were blanks, warning shots not aimed at the target, or because the soldier simply missed. It's also completely possible that none of this happened at all, and some bored teenagers that were conscripted into the military decided to make 
make up a ghost story. One of the big contributing factors to the decrease in reported Jack sightings is that people weren't nearly as scared of him anymore. In the beginning, before we had detailed accounts of his attacks, he was just a man dressed as a bull or a bear. Then he transformed into a flame-spitting devil with glowing red eyes and a nine-foot vertical leap. From there, the stories only began to be more embellished. The more outlandish the tales of Jack became, the less he was able to instill fear. Yeah, because at some point people were like... <laughs> That's not real. <laughs> he's got glowing red eyes. Oh, please. But the closer you get to, if he's got, if he doesn't have glowing red eyes, he's more scary because then he's more real. But Jack had been a big moneymaker for the Penny Dreadfuls and they weren't ready to give up that quite yet. Since the decrease in attacks and increase in stories that were obviously bullshit and the people no longer feared him, it was time for writers to retool the character. Instead of terrorizing women just for laughs, what if he was more heroic? A vigilante type character who terrorized criminals. Instead of a supernatural demon, the stories transformed Jack into a wealthy nobleman who used his considerable resources and inventive skills to leap from rooftop to rooftop, hunting criminals at night with a wide array of gadgets. <laughs> Bruce Wayne? If that doesn't sound at all familiar, I should also point out that Jack's cloak looked like bat wings in the illustration. I've got an image here. This is the inspiration for Batman for sure, right? Kevin's even given me an image of it next to Detective Comics number 27. Um, with Batman on the front, and it... This is very similar. He was no longer the devilish terror of London, he was Batman. The fact that Batman was clearly heavily influenced by Jack helps explain why in the early days Batman carried a gun and really didn't think twice about killing people. The last alleged sighting of Spring-Heeled Jack in England came in 1904, a mere 67 years after it had all began. But that wasn't quite the end for old Jack. He would make one final resurgence during World War II in German-occupied Prague. There he was known as Perak, the Spring Man of Prague. Perak went through the same transition from villain to hero, though he did it in the span of only a few years, with cartoons featuring him fighting the SS first appearing just after the end of the war. The character seems to have remained at least somewhat popular, as there had been a Perak animated short as recently as 2016. But aside from his future moves for to Prague and Gotham City, this was the end for Jack. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, there wasn't any evidence to go on in apprehending the criminal. All police had to go on with some shaky eyewitness testimony and urban legends. So now, it is time to look at the theories and see if, with the gift of hindsight, we can determine the most likely culprit for the identity of Spring-Heeled Jack. Yeah, I mean, look, if they're not catching like Jack the Ripper who was like horribly murdering people, they're not really gonna be... He's just a prankster doing cool pranks. And also, how did he jump so high? Because that's pretty cool. What's he got going on there? He's got those like magical jumping boots that, you know, were popular a few years ago or a decade ago or two decades ago. You know the ones, the big like kangaroo legs or whatever they were called. Theories. Given the allegedly supernatural feats performed by Jack, obviously there were going to be some supernatural theories. Some people believed that he was an alien, others that he was an occult sorcerer, and of course many people believed that he was a genuine demon. There were variations on the origins of such a demon with different theories, believing he was intentionally summoned to Earth through the use of black magic, accidentally summoned, or that he was simply able to come to Earth of his own accord. These are obviously all bullshit because none of that stuff is real. I mean, aliens are probably real, but they haven't ever been to Earth, and if one did come, I'd like to think it would have more important things to do than scare random people in London. Yes, oh my god, Kevin, you have exactly the same opinion on this shit as I do, and it seems like the only obvious opinion to have. There are aliens, probably. The universe is really big. They probably haven't been here. And if they have, they don't give a shit about us. <laughs> it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where they're like, nah, just Earth's gonna be demolished because it's in the way of a highway. <laughs> No, they don't think about it. 
Then again, if I've learned anything from Doctor Who is that aliens almost exclusively visit London, so maybe I'm way off base here. The next two theories are that it was either a hoax or a case of mass hysteria. In this case, by hoax, I mean that the events were all lied about and never took place, not just the more obvious hoax of a man pretending to be a demon. The argument in favor of mass hysteria is that there were various rumors and stories of different bogeymen plaguing England. These stories became continuously exaggerated until they evolved into the stuff of legend that we talked about today, none of which is any more real than Slender Man. Personally, don't really buy any of this. The thing with most urban legends and bogeyman stories is that they all happen to a friend of a friend that nobody can quite pin down. But Jack had confirmed victims with genuine, visible injuries. The police were able to determine a scientifically plausible explanation for his ability to spit blue flames, and the leaping over walls in a single bound could simply be the result of shitty or exaggerated eyewitness testimony, which is eyewitness testimony is always shitty. And um okay fair enough i think it's some dude playing a prank and it gets exaggerated i think it did happen i don't think it's hysteria i think it's like it's a combination it's a combination of both it's like the dude was real and he was like playing pranks on someone and then everyone misremembers and blows the story out of proportion the place case closed it's absolutely possible that the walls Jack left over were not anywhere close to nine feet and people just exaggerated. Alternatively, he may have just scaled the walls with such speed that to an already disorientated and agitated victim, it seems like a single jump, especially since streetlights didn't yet exist, so he would have been performing these feats in relative darkness. It's reasonable that he may have just been an early practitioner of parkour, who also had more time and sulfur on his hands that he knew what to do with. Nothing Jack did is outside the bounds of reality, and it requires only very minor exaggerations or confusion from the witnesses with regards to his jumping abilities. Between this and the known victims, I can't simply write it off as mass hysteria. Those girls were clearly attacked by someone, and it's hard for me to believe their minds would invent such fantastical stories involving the local bogeyman if it, wasn't just an, if it was just an assault by the run-of-the-mill local shitbag. But speaking of the victims, there's one other I didn't mention yet. In between the attacks on Jane Alsop and Lucy Scales, there was one very brief encounter between Jack and a servant boy. Once again, Jack had come knocking on the door, and when the servant answered, Jack whipped back his cloak to reveal his demonic appearance. The boy screamed, and Jack ran away. It would have been a very minor and largely insignificant incident if it not for one detail that the boy remembered. Before the cloak was pulled away, the boy saw that it had an embroidered coat of arms on it with the letter W. That W obviously stood for Henry de la Poer Bearer also known as the third marquis of waterford i was gonna say it probably stood for wayne but he was even better known as the mad marquis because the dude was a giant dick the marquis was in his 20s when jack first landed on the scene which would have made him young and stupid enough to think that it was funny he's like the original youtube he's he's the original youtube prankster isn't he he was frequently getting into trouble and making the news for his drunken fighting vandalism and overturning fruit stands and it was also said that he both hated women and would do anything to win a bet this lines up with a letter received by Lord Mayor Cowan that claimed Jack was a nobleman who was terrorizing women on a wager. To give a little more insight into exactly what sort of man the Marquis was, we need to look at the events of April the 6th, 1837. This was just a few months before the attacks by Springhield Jack began, and that night is often regarded as the origin of the phrase, paint the town red. The Marquis and his hunting buddies had been drinking that night and were completely plastered when they arrived at the toll gates on their return trip home. The tollkeeper demanded payment before he would open the gate, lest the three drunken lunatics try to run past without paying. For a man of such privilege, the toll would have been a mere pittance, a meager sum that he would have never missed. But why simply pay the toll when he and his inebriated friends could commit several crimes instead? 
these privileged dickheads. Some sort of repairs or renovations were underway at the gate, and there were ladders, brushes, and cans of red paint lying around. The barkeep and his friends grabbed the brushes and paint and attacked the tollkeeper. A police officer tried to intervene, but both he and the tollkeeper were beaten up, painted red, and thrown into the toll house. Holy <laughs> I feel that this has just gone from like drunken tomfoolery to like, uh oh, you're beating up a police officer and kidnapping him or imprisoning him. You're gonna get some jail time. But this is the past, so don't worry, he's a marquee. I'm sure he's rich and connected. He's probably gonna get off completely scot free, which is why he does this kind of they nailed the door shut before also painting that red, then went on to town. The gang strolled through the streets, banging on doors and painting them red. They pulled down the sign from a local inn and tossed it into the canal. Then they lifted up one of the men to paint a sign for another inn that was hung rather high. Occasionally, a lone police officer would come across the men, but each time the officer was assaulted and painted red. Eventually, the police decided to show up as a group rather than one at a time, and they were able to disperse the rowdy aristocrats, hauling one of them off to jail. Was that the end of it, you ask? Well, fuck no, because the Marquis was still drunk. He and his friends went to the prison, breaking multiple locks, beating up the guards. They threatened to murder the guards if they didn't produce the key to release their friends. Oh my god. Back in the day, if you were rich, you could get away with anything. And I get that rich people get away with shit today, but dude. <laughs> Once he sobered up the next day, the Marquis paid for all the damages they had caused. He and his friends were still brought on to trial on charges of riot, but they were found not guilty because they were so rich. <laughs> Fucking bang on, Jesus. They did have to pay a fine of a little over $10,000 in today's money, but that would have been nothing to them. Yeah, they got off light. 10000 in today's money? Yeah, sure, it's a lot. But they broke a dude out of jail and threatened to murder police officers. So that's the sort of man we're dealing with here. Add in some misogyny and a refusal to lose a bet no matter what, and it seems pretty likely that the Marquis could have been the original Spring-Heeled Jack. It's also worth noting that he was living in the area of the attacks from 1837 to 1842, which corresponds with the dates when the attacks began and were most common. In 1842, he got married, cleaned up his act, and moved to Ireland, which coincidentally coincided with the attacks slowing down. He's a pretty good suspect. But then again, it could definitely still be aliens. Nope. <laughs> So I think it was maybe this dude or someone like this dude. It doesn't really matter. And there were also some copycats. That's it. Simple. Decoded. Wrap up. Based on the contemporary information that is available, it seems very likely that the Marquis of Waterford was the original Spring-Heeled Jack. He is exactly the sort of asshole that would have gone around scaring women for laughs, especially as part of a bet, and his residency in the area lines up with the period when Jack was most active. If this was the monster's true identity, there were of course copycats that kept the legend alive for decades afterwards. However, this all comes with a couple of major caveats. First, the contemporary reports that are available are really limited, not counting the extremely fictitious penny dreadfuls. The original 1838 pamphlets detailing Jack's exploits have been lost to time, and most of these specific accounts were written after the fact. The, the attacks on Jane and Lucy were investigated by the police and reported in the papers when they happened, but everything else came later. Since the victims were generally poor, which in Victorian England barely even made them people, it wasn't until Jack received official recognition that anyone was willing to take it seriously. This means there could have been other evidence pointing in one direction or another that was never properly recorded. The other caveat is that the Marquis was considered a prime suspect at the time, despite authorities obviously not taking action against a member of the upper class. It's said that he was such a legendary douchebag that his name instilled as much fear in people as that of Springhill Jack himself. <laughs> Can you imagine this guy walking into your pub? You're like, oh no, not again, Marquis. Can you drink somewhere else? This always ends up with you trashing the place and then having to pay me. And I don't like it, Marquis. I don't like having to fix my pub every time you come here, Marquis. 
I know his name's not Marquis, but I forgot his name. As this was already a popular theory while it was happening, it's possible that the contemporary accounts that we have access to seem to incriminate the Marquis because that was the narrative that people were trying to weave. On the other hand, it was also a popular theory that Jack was a literal demon, but we don't have evidence pointing in that direction, so maybe I'm just overthinking this. Of course, I do have one possible theory, which is a combination of the natural and the supernatural. Okie dokie, Kevin, here we go. It's reported that the Marquis died in 1859, but what if none of that actually happened? What if the Marquis not only didn't die in the 1850s, but he's still alive today as an immortal demon? I don't know, Kevin, that does seem a little bit unlikely. <laughs> we know that Springhill Jack made the move from England to Prague, where he's still alive today, so can we really call it a coincidence that I, Henry de la Poer Beresford, Marquis of Waterford, is an anagram of quaffed beard Simon Whistler, ye error-proof reader? Is that true? Oh my god, if that's actually true, that's quite amazing. Um, error-proof re- Wow. Okay, there we go. I guess it does seem like it could be. Amazing! Maybe someone could figure that out at home. I'm not. <laughs> this guy. Uh, anyway, this has been an episode of Coding the Unknown. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. I've been your host, non-immortal demon Simon, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.